welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 87 for Wednesday, March 6th, 2019. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. I have had the good fortune to speak with so many wonderful guests on this show over the years, but so few guests can actually say that this podcast wouldn't exist if it were not for their support and their contributions. And I'm delighted to have back on this show just such a guest after an almost three-year absence from Polygamer. Welcome back to my good friend and freelance writer and author extraordinaire, Tifa Robles. Hi, Tifa. Hi, Ken. It's so great to be back. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. It seems like it was just yesterday that you were on the show and just before that, but it's actually been about five years since we met at PAX East when we did a panel together all about feminism and gaming, where you swooped in at the last minute to fill an empty seat. And thank goodness you did. Yeah, it's been a crazy few years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you you have been very busy and you have accomplished a lot and you're going to be accomplishing a lot in 2019. We're here to talk today about everything you have coming up. But first, a brief recap. Last time you were on the show, you were talking largely about the Lady Planeswalker Society. Can you give us a brief recap of what that's about? Absolutely. So the Lady Planeswalker Society is an organization that I founded eight years ago uh, to help uh women and all genders into Magic the Gathering in a welcoming, friendly environment, um, sort of as an alternative to the tournament scene. Wow. So Lady Planeswalker Society was about five years old when we last spoke. It's now eight years old. It's been growing by leaps and bounds, I hope. Yeah, yeah. There's always new chapters opening up all over the world. We attended lots and lots of conventions over the last few years, and it just continues to be just a crazy success, way more successful than, you know, I would have imagined in my dreams when I started it. Oh, that is so fantastic. I do have a guilty confession, though. In the three years since we last spoke, I still have not learned how to play magic. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) There are just so many hours in the day and there are so many hobbies. Oh, yeah. I I know that feeling for sure. <laughs> you know, like in 2017 alone, with the 200 hours I spent on Breath of the Wild, I could have learned magic, but no, Nintendo had to go and release the Switch. <laughs> I'm sorry. So there's been a change recently in your involvement with the Lady Planeswalker Society. What's up with that? Yeah, uh, so after eight years of you know being very dedicated and spending a good chunk of my time on the organization... Uh, I have stepped down as the uh, event organizer. After having a baby uh, two and a half years ago, it was a lot harder to be involved with the organization uh, to the level that I wanted to be. I was no longer able to attend events every week. Uh, I still continued to do the conventions that we were doing. But at this point, uh, I have now left my career in the games industry and I'm trying to really focus in on being a writer. So I need all the time that I can have to do that. And unfortunately, you know, it was just kind of time, very bittersweet to walk away. But after eight years, I mean, that is a longer commitment than I've given anything. And I'm really proud of the work I accomplished and really happy uh, to see that the organization will continue on without me. 
Sure, that is a long time to give of yourself to any one cause. And even though the Lady Planeswalker Society still has a lot of growing to do, I can appreciate that after eight years, your own personal growth opportunities in that context may have sort of plateaued. And now you're looking for new challenges and new environments, and you have to decide what has to give in order to make room for those new opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And part of it, too, is almost just an identity thing. Like, I've been the organizer for this uh, organization for so long that I am ready for people to view me as, you know, an author of this book that I have coming out. I've always been sort of a Jill of all trades and wear a lot of hats, but I'm ready to sort of, you know, redefine what that means for me. Well, I hope it's okay if I continue to think of you as magic playing Tifa. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was still <laughs> very much a magic player. I still care very much about the organization and uh, the game and the community. Um, is a very important part of myself. That's awesome. And gaming, of course, is a large part of your identity and continues to be so, including with your latest YouTube show. What's this all about? Yeah! So I am one of the co-hosts for Gen Con's show, Table Takes. It's a weekly news show with a few people from the gaming industry. Uh, the, the designer, Emma Larkins, is one of my co-hosts. My husband, Mike, is also on the show. And uh, Christian Doyle from Zombie Orpheus Entertainment is also one of the hosts. Uh, so we have a really great group of people. We talk about gaming news every week, uh, focusing on any new releases of board games, uh, Kickstarters, other industry news that might be interesting to folks. It's been a really fun experience so far. Uh, we're going into our second month of shows. This is Gen Con as in the huge Dungeons and Dragons convention that's been happening every year, I think, in Milwaukee for decades. Uh, it's actually in Indianapolis now. Okay, it used to be in Milwaukee. I'm not making that up, right? Yeah, it started in Milwaukee, and now it's been in Indianapolis for a long time. It, wow, it actually uh, started in 1968, so it's been going on for a very, very long time. Wow. So this convention is actually older than Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, yeah. It's you know probably the biggest tabletop convention in the world, uh, so I felt very honored that they reached out to me uh, to ask if I wanted to be a co-host on their new show. I didn't even realize that they had a presence outside of the physical event. I think they're just constantly building um, on their brand, and they're, I think, always involved with the industry to some degree. Uh, being, you know, that big of a presence in the gaming industry, I'm sure they pay attention all year round to their audience and making sure they're doing all they can to support them. Now, I am a board game player, but certainly not to the degree I am a video gamer, and I don't have my finger on the pulse of the board game community. For those of us who are ignorant about the constant events that are happening in that space, is there that much board game news to justify this show? One of the big things happening in the industry right now is that Kickstarter has become the way games are made, and that opens up who is able to make games and how many games are being created uh, where honestly we're reaching a point where there's more games coming out than even stores can stock on their shelves. Uh, so there's a lot in the pipeline. And I think part of what we're trying to do with the show is find the best ones to showcase. Uh, so there might be, you know, 30 board game Kickstarters happening right now, but we want to find the best five to point people to. Or at least, you know, make sure things don't slip under 
or radar. Uh, and also a big part of what we focus on is just industry news. So just for an example, if a company takes over a different company, uh, like uh, Modifius just took over a white, w- sorry, White Wolf Games. Um, so that was something we covered to let people know that, you know, to expect more from what was this one small indie publisher that is now picked up by a bigger company. Things like that that might affect, you know, retailers or bigger companies in the industry besides just the consumers. So when a game is still on Kickstarter and there are 30 of them to choose from and they're all still in development or haven't gone to production yet, how do you decide which one to focus on? Uh, So I think everybody has a different answer to this. For me personally, I want to find games that are completely unique, maybe taking features from a bunch of different board games that I like and sort of smashing them together into a new gameplay experience uh, or something that I've never even really seen before. Like there's this game called Wavelength coming up that is a very social game where people have to communicate a concept without giving away information. I remember seeing that Kickstarter as a telepathic party game from the creators of The Mind and Monikers. Yes. Yeah. So a telepathic party game. I mean, that's an example of something that's very unique, not something I've heard of before. <laughs> uh, and looking at the gameplay, there's not a lot of information, but what I can see looks very interesting. So for me, it was an like automatically back that product just because it's something different than everything else that I have on my shelf. Oh, that's very cool. So, I mean, you're right. There are a lot of Kickstarters for board games, and I sometimes want to invest in them, but it seems to me that board games at times can be even more expensive than video games because they have to manufacture and produce all these miniatures, so many different parts. For example, I just finished playing the PlayStation 4 game Horizon Zero Dawn, one of the best games I've ever played. And they made a board game version of it, but it costs so much money and it costs a hundred pounds to get it. And it doesn't actually ship for another year. Are those the exception or are board games getting more expensive? I mean, board games cost a lot to make the production behind especially quality pieces in a board game uh shipping the weight of something like that i mean board games have never been a low cost uh hobby to be in and a lot of you know the best games for a long time have been like 70 dollar price tags uh and i think that's because the quality in order to make a good board game, you can't really be cheap. Uh, you can't really cut corners. Kickstarter is luckily providing a way for companies to really make these high quality products, but it definitely isn't something for an audience on a low budget, which, you know, is kind of unfortunate, especially because I like to focus on eliminating obstacles for people in order to play games and price is one that i hope to see start seeing games that are maybe on the lighter side uh to help people into this hobby on the bright side what i'm seeing a trend toward is more and more board game cafes and pubs right near where i live the adventure pub just opened up a few months ago and you go in there and with your dinner you get to play a game and if you want to stay longer and play games all night it's like 10 bucks an hour for complete access to anything in their library that way you don't need to drop 100 bucks on a game you might not even like that's true and seattle living in seattle i mean we're like a hub of places like that it's really become a part of the culture here 
almost any city in the area has some sort of board game store and most of which at this point uh, serve food and some of them are even serving alcohol. And I think Mox Boarding House is a huge contributor to that shift in culture uh, when they started here a few years ago. Oh, that's fantastic. So going back to your Gen Con show, Table Takes, is this a YouTube show, an audio podcast? What are the different ways that people can consume it? So it's actually a Twitch stream every Friday uh, from 11.30, or sorry, from 11 a.m. to 12, uh, hoping to catch people on their lunch break so they can watch us on Twitch. And after the show, it will always be available via VOD if you go onto the Twitch channel or on YouTube later when it gets uploaded. Cool. And that's 11 a.m. Pacific time? Yes. Awesome. And that's not your only medium by which you're covering board games nowadays. I understand you're also freelance writing for a website called Tabletop Test. Yes. Yeah. I've been writing for Tabletop Test since they started last July. I'm absolutely thrilled with the experience. Everybody on there is brilliant. uh, And it's been an honor to write with all of them. I have two different sort of ongoing article series that I have. One of them is focused on magic called the Beginner Planeswalker Guide. And it's, I tried to really bring it down to bare bones basics for people who've maybe even never played a game in their life so that they can come into this, read it, you know, sort of digest information before jumping into the next article at a really slow pace or whatever is going to work for them. Um, And I've been really happy with how that series has turned out. And then I also have a series called Gateway Games, which is sort of a similar goal only for board games. And each article, I I introduce a new style of games. So like a resource management game or deck building game, you know, all the different styles. I want people to learn what different board games are. So when they do go into one of these cafes and want to try one, they know what they're looking for. I had looked through your archive on this website to see how far back your contributions went. I forgot to look at the larger context of how far back the website went. I didn't realize you got in on the ground floor. How did you manage that? Uh, So the the owner of the company, Dan Albright, uh, is actually somebody who I've known for a long time in the gaming industry. And we used to play Magic together at Uncle's Games back in 2010 when I was starting to play the game. Oh, fantastic. So it's all about the local networking. And you never know who you might meet at the Adventure Pub, for example. Yeah, it was honestly, I was kind of happily surprised when he reached out and asked, if I would be a contributing writer and it happened to be within the same time frame of me making the decision to be a freelance writer. Uh, so the timing actually could not have been more perfect. Oh, that's awesome. As a writer for a board game website, do you have additional access to resources or early copies of games so that you can provide this coverage? Uh, we haven't gotten anything like that. I mean, we're a very new site, but I have been able to do press for some shows. Uh, I had a press badge for PAX uh, West last year, which was my first time attending in a press capacity, which was really cool. Uh, and then I actually have an upcoming um, press badge for Emerald City Comic Con. So I'll be able to check out anything gaming related going on there and report back in some articles. Oh, that's really cool. I I feel like, again, as somebody who plays video games primarily, when I go to PAX East and I walk the sky bridge between from one wing to the other, and I look down, I just see rows upon rows of people playing video games. I feel like it's such an expansive community and environment that so much is happening in, and that 
it can be overwhelming to try to get into it. And so I think articles like what you're writing really do provide a valuable resource. Thanks. It's very important to me. Uh, gaming has affected my life in so many ways and really guided me down the path for everything that I've done. And I want to make sure anyone out there uh, has the opportunity to find games that are going to do the same for them. It looks like you've written more than 50 articles for the Tabletop Test in just the last six months. That's two to three every single week, which can be almost exhausting. Do you have a periodic schedule on which you're publishing your content? I try to get an article up every Tuesday and every Thursday. Um, I'll admit there are some days where I... I so I so step back a little bit. I work nights, and I'll admit that there are times where I'm so tired at the end of a day after you know taking care of my son all day or you know dealing with other life stuff that I am too tired once 10 p.m. rolls around to write an article. So sometimes I'm a little bit later, and it you know might not come out until like a Tuesday afternoon or even slip into Wednesday, but I try consistently to get two articles up a week. Oh, that's fantastic. I have a blog of my own that I write just for fun, but I've been doing a piece every single Monday, just once a week for nine years. And I find that sticking to that schedule makes it easier to just engage in the craft of writing to that so that you're committed to having something up there and just and knowing that you're going to do it, you're always on the lookout for stories and angles. Yeah, it is it is really hard. <laughs> so in November, I actually did a blog post every day, uh, sort of my own version of NaNoWriMo. And I, it it was challenging, way more than I expected it to be. Wow. Was this for a website or just your own Tumblr? This was my own uh, personal blog on Tumblr. Uh, it was you know, shortly after I had started being a freelance writer, I had just finished uh, the draft of my novel and it was out at peer reviews. So I was like, man, I have some time where I don't have to be working on my novel for a little bit. Maybe I can sink myself into becoming a better blogger. Uh, and this was my way of doing that. Wow. When one is writing 30 blog posts in a single month, where do you get all your ideas from? That was actually kind of an easy part for me because I have a lot of interests and a lot of different things that I wanted to sort of try my hand at writing. Um, anything from, I had quite a few fun listicles of like fictional crushes or favorite characters from video games who inspire me or inspiring women. Um, sort of, you know, playing with that style of listicles like you see all over the internet, but also doing some really deep, heavy personal writing about mental health issues, challenges with parenting, all sorts of other things. I, I wanted to cover a wide variety of topics. And yeah, I had plenty and plenty. And I also reached out to my community on Facebook and Twitter and asked if there were certain things people wanted to hear from me. And I had so many responses, I couldn't even get to probably 25% of them. <laughs> so what was the reception to this exercise? What sort of responses did you get from people reading your Tumblr? Uh, people seemed really engaged. Like I had quite a few folks who seemed to be checking in every day to see what I was writing about, which was really great. Uh, but it also really upped to that pressure <laughs> of, of expectations and knowing that I didn't want to let anybody down. <laughs> That's right. Sometimes it can be worse to have an audience because then there is an expectation and you don't, like you said, it's not just yourself you're letting down anymore. Yeah, but it was really exciting and it made me really happy and glad that I have so many supporters in my life that 
are, you know, enjoying my work and providing me with feedback. Um, I feel really lucky and blessed to be uh, able to have that. Well, you're also extremely talented, and so you make it easy for people to stay engaged. Oh, thanks. Uh, I I've been working on writing for most of my life, so I'm I'm glad that it comes through. <laughs> <laughs> so, what were your own takeaways from this exercise? We talked about how the audience responded, but writing can be a form of self analysis, and sometimes you don't always know what's going to come out. What What did you learn about yourself or about your own writing? I definitely learned some of my own personal limits. Um, about patience and endurance. I had to find ways to really motivate myself some days. Uh, like I said, I mean, some days you're just like really tired and don't feel like writing. And I had to figure out how to work through that. And I think it really helped prepare me for the intensive writing and focus that I need to finish this novel and get it published this year. Because it's just, I think all writers would agree that one of the hardest things is that you're not always automatically in that zone but you still have to have to do it that's right writer's block is a real thing even if you have the idea if you have the germ of the inspiration of what you want the final piece to be about you still have to get from point a to point z and that involves putting a lot of words together in a way that makes sense and is inspiring and that's not always easy no and i mean some like sometimes you just don't want to <laughs> like honestly <laughs> right yeah there are just days where it's like i just don't want to write today <laughs> and in november i had to work past that right yeah you had to break through that wall and just keep going yeah now, you have one advantage that many people don't, which is an actual degree in creative writing. But a lot of people associate the phrase creative writing with fiction and fantasy and novels and the like. We'll certainly talk about that, but I would say that your work for the tabletop test, the writing for your Tumblr, is not fiction. So how does your degree in creative writing inform your nonfiction writing? Oh, man. So I would say my degree helped me with writing in general, like not, not even related to fiction, but just as much with my nonfiction writing. And I think a huge part of that is learning how to make something feel real and personal and interesting, even if it's a topic that, you know, it very easily could not be those things. Uh, so I guess a good example would be I do a lot of uh, articles on Disney. And I, I think that the stuff that I write about it would be interesting to people who aren't even Disney fans. Um, for example, I've done some pieces on the most and least feminist princesses. Uh, and then a similar one on the princes about, you know, basically how good of people they are. I try to find a creative way to approach these topics and write about them in an interesting way that is really more about my take and feelings on society and how it comes through into these films. But really, I just feel like my degree has helped me to communicate better and that that transfers into all sorts of different areas in my life that you wouldn't even expect. I love that phrase that it helps you to write about things in a way that makes them seem real. That is so valuable for so many different topics, even things that actually are real. Just, you know, to pick a topic, global warming. For a lot of people, that's not real because they can't wrap their minds around it. But if somebody writes about it in a creative fashion and finds that way to get into somebody's head, 
know, that is very creative writing, whether or not it's fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. And for me, um, somebody actually asked if I could write about global warming, but I just don't feel like I'm knowledgeable enough <laughs> to really cover that topic with the attention it deserves. But for me, everything that I write has sort of a feminist undertones, like as a feminist and somebody who really, I try to criticize everything that I consume from that perspective. Um, any blog post that I write has that as an undertone, even if it's not part of the topic. And I think that for me, it helps also tie in anything that I do. I know that that is a goal of mine, even again, if it's very subtle in there somewhere, but just keeping that importance of what is real to me and what matters to me. And I think that makes it more personal and easy for people to feel and relate to. And you have another advantage in that area because in addition to your degree in creative writing, you also have a minor in women's studies. So I, I need to ask though, how does your minor in biological anthropology come into play? Oh man, I love biological anthropology. <laughs> uh, so it's basically, if people aren't familiar with what that is, uh, it's essentially the study of evolution from both a biological standpoint and a cultural standpoint and how those two things uh, interact with each other. And I think that it definitely helps. Uh, just like I was saying how creative writing taught me to communicate, well, biological anthropology helps me to understand how people are going to react to things or what expectations people might have. It's really taught me about human nature in a way that I think helps my writing because I... I try to have a better understanding of people in general. Uh, so when I approach a subject, I feel like I can, you know, sort of think about that as I go into it. No, that's, that's very valuable. It, it's a form of empathy that lets you put yourself into your reader's shoes and write things that will appeal to them. I, I can totally see how that would go hand in glove. Yeah. And I, I feel like just learning about human nature helped in so many areas. And yeah, you really called it out with empathy, uh, not just in writing, but just in general. And knowing that a lot of behaviors people have, they aren't aware of them. Like it's very instinctual responses to things that they don't have any control over. And I don't know, I feel like it, was, it just like really helped me see the world for what it is for. I think the world could use a little bit more empathy. I think that's the number one thing the world could use more of. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a bigger topic than Polygamer can address in one episode, unfortunately. <laughs> but we should keep talking about creative writing. Specifically, you've hinted at this so far. You have a novel coming up. I do. Uh, the Explorers of Azulicent. And, and what is Azulicent? So Azulicent is the world that I created. Wow, you created an entire world. That is where your degree in creative writing comes into play. My goodness. <laughs> so you've been working on this book for a while, I understand. Yes. I had the idea when I was actually only 14 years old. Uh, at the time, I was absolutely obsessed with RPG video games, uh, mainly the Final Fantasy series, but also Legend of Dragoon, um, anything Zelda. Uh, I was all about that stuff and sort of had this idea of, I want to create my own story and characters like I see in these games that I love. Uh, and it Pretty soon into that process, I realized that I was creating a story that could be a book. 
I didn't have the technology to make a game, but I could take these same ideas and turn it into fiction. I think some people in those circumstances might have taken that idea and then gone to college for computer science to turn it into a game. So where did the book angle, I, th- I think you told us where that came from, but why did it stick? Uh, so, I mean, as I started really diving deep into these characters, I was finding that their personal stories and development that I wanted to focus on is what was important to me. Uh, and I was a fan of writing already. Uh, I I was also an artist when I was younger, and my mom always that I didn't just create a picture. I made a whole story behind every picture that I drew. So I think I was just naturally a storyteller. And for me, it was video games that sort of inspired that. But the characters that I was diving into was real. They were fit for a book and that style of. Uh, media. Yeah, it's definitely the narrative that I find as I get older is what interests me in video games, whether it's Oxenfree, Life is Strange, or Firewatch. And I'm still reading novels, of course. I've been reading novels since I was a kid. And you've been writing novels since you were a kid. How has your novel changed in the decade plus since you were 14 years old? Yeah, so I intentionally wanted to get my degree before doing anything uh, like publishing it because I knew that it could be a lot better than I wrote it as a teenager. I did a couple sort of revisions while I was in college, but it wasn't until this last year that I really hit it hard with like, finishing it and incorporating everything that I'd learned. And a huge part of that wasn't just my degree, but just my complexities of real life experience. Uh, Like I didn't know what falling in love really felt like when I was 14 years old. And now I have, you know, a huge understanding that I didn't have before of like the importance of representation and diversity. Uh, That wasn't really something I even thought about when I was 14. And now I want to do all I can to ensure that I am doing that well in my own piece. Uh, So as deep of stories and ideas that I had for these characters, they've just gotten even deeper. And I think my scene writing has came a long way too with learning, you know, how to show in a scene versus just tell. If you were just to look at the like brief summary of the book, not a lot has changed, but the complexity and experience that I have from my personal life has really formed it into something more meaningful. And I probably should have asked this earlier, what is the brief summary of the book? <laughs> uh, so uh, The Explorers of Azulicent is about... Three different women, and they're different coming-to-age stories. Uh, The main protagonist is a pirate captain. Um, She's super cool. uh, Sort of what you would expect from your standard swashbuckling pirate captain, only in woman form, and totally embracing that, you know, femininity and power of being a badass woman. And she is bisexual and, you know, makes bets with her friends on who she can hit on in a bar. Uh, just a really fun pirate character, but from the perspective of a woman. Another one of the main characters is a princess. Uh, she's sort of the standard trapped in a castle, wants more out of life, uh, but I really push the limits on what that means and turn her into a very powerful 
character who's willing to do anything to better her uh sorry to better her kingdom even going up against her own father and just what it means to be a princess but in a stronger caring capacity that a world leader would actually need and then the last character uh is a adventure seeking outlander she's sort of a world traveler um that grew up in a small continent and moved across the world to try to become a head chef uh but her journey isn't going as expected so she decides to start traveling the world with a goal of seeing every continent uh, in Azulicent. That's fantastic. So we have three female protagonists, and you mentioned that representation became more important to you as you got older, and you have a bisexual character. I, I need to ask, this fictional world that you've created, how tolerant is it of diversity? Uh, so each each protagonist has sort of their own like party of people that you're going to meet that are going to be going along um, these adventures with them. And there's a lot of diversity across the board. So there's really like 11 main characters um, that you're going to be learning about. And across the course of all of them, there's a variety of um, like, I want to say ethnicities, but it's a fictional world. So that gets a little, you know, what does that mean? But basically there's a variety of cultures um, and skin colors and different upbringings. And I try to make sure that there's something for everybody. Um, I focus more on characteristics that I personally can relate to, especially with it being my first novel. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, not incorrectly representing anything um, but I definitely am trying to showcase a variety of different types of people and cultures and who is your target audience for this book uh, so it's a young adult fantasy it's mostly aimed for teenage women to women in their 20s but honestly I think that anybody could enjoy uh, this story and I've had a variety of peer reviewers with a diverse set of backgrounds, including men as well, that have really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'm hoping that just like in everything that I do, I hope everybody can take something away from it. But my primary audience is young adult women. Awesome. And the way that you're going to be getting this book published, I understand, is a Kickstarter, which at the time of, the, of this airing, it launched last week on February 26th. Unfortunately, due to the vagaries of the internet, we're recording before the Kickstarter launch, so you can't tell me how it's going yet, but tell me a little bit about the Kickstarter. Yeah, so I've been working very hard on this Kickstarter for at least three months, and I'm so excited for it to launch. I think I have some amazing assets to show off, uh, some really neat ideas for rewards, and yeah, I'm just... I'm super excited. I got to work with three different artists. Nick Trujillo did is working on my map. I have a concept map for him that's going to be uh, in the book. I have a cover artist, uh, Stephanie Martin, who is helping me figure out how to turn you know, this into an actual physical book. And the main cover art is by Amanda Sharp, who's a fantasy artist that I've known for years. And I think she did a fantastic job capturing these characters. Uh, so in the Kickstarter, it'll be the first time for everybody to really take a look at all these things that I've created. I also go deep into uh, what the 
novel is about, a little bit more about the characters, and a little more about the world, and also really diving into who the audience is and what my inspiration for writing was. So I know that people make book trailers similar to movie trailers. Will your Kickstarter have some sort of a video to promote this book? So I do have a video. Uh, it's mostly me explaining um, you know, what my Kickstarter is and why I feel people should support me. Uh, my husband actually produced and edited the video for me and did a fantastic job of making it super interesting with music and graphics and different sort of like B shots of me doing things. Uh, so I think it's a really interesting video. Uh, and we had a very low budget. So I think considering that uh, we did a really, really great job. And I'm excited to see what people think. Oh, that's fantastic. And what is the goal of the Kickstarter other than to win? <laughs> Um, so I'm hoping to raise close to $12,000, um, which is more than you normally see books on Kickstarters, but I've done a lot of research and I have a pretty big network of fans and supporters. And I think that with this amount of money, I'd be able to do some, um, like basically a book tour going to some conventions. Um, I'm making sure that I have really strong marketing with like Facebook ads and Instagram ads, uh, things that I don't think a lot of books do, but that are going to help set me up for success. Awesome. And you have some great rewards and incentives for people to look at. You mentioned the map, etc. There's also a first chapter free preview for anybody who just even takes a look at the Kickstarter. And then those who back it can also get chapters two through four. How much of the book is that? How long is the final book going to be? So I'm still working on the final revision, which I'll be honest, is a little more intensive than I was expecting it to be. But I'm expecting the book to be around 85,000 words uh, would be the ballpark that I'm guessing. Um, the first preview chapter is pretty short. It's seven pages. Um, but it's really just a way to give people a taste of what to expect in this book um, so that they're not just signing, you know, backing something blindly. And what are some of the other rewards that you offer? I see that the reward scales go quite a ways up. Yeah. So um, I'll just quickly go through the rewards. Uh, I, it was very important to me to have a $1 reward so that, you know, someone who might not be able to afford backing it can still support me in some way and follow the project. Um, I have an ebook reward at $10, paperback copy at 28 if you go up six more dollars, I'll actually sign the paperback for you and give you three artsy bookmarks featuring the art of the main characters. At $65, you can get an exclusive hardcover. And then for $100, you basically get a bunch of different stuff, including a crystal necklace, which is a important part of the book, um, an autographed hard copy, some art prints, uh, and the bookmarks. Uh, that's sort of if you know people can afford to support me, that's the level that I really hope they can go for um, to get a little bit of everything. Uh, and then if you really want to do something big, I have a $500 reward tier where I will actually treat you to lunch uh, and spend a day with you. And then if you want to name a character, you can pledge uh, $1,000. Wow, that's wow. You can be forever immortalized as a character in a book. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I've seen that on other Kickstarters and I think it's a really neat idea. And where I am in the process of the book, I can I have like quite a few, you know, side characters that their names could 
change to something else. Um, and I could even, you know, add a little bit of personality if somebody wants to have their likeness in my book. Is there a limit on how many of those rewards you're giving out? There is. Yeah. It's a limit of five. I think that's reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite rewards ever for a Kickstarter was when I backed the campaign for a strong female protagonist, which is a webcomic. Oh, yeah. And they wrote... Oh, you read it? Uh, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. And they wrote me in as a character. Yeah. I think I saw that. (laughs) Maybe you shared it or... I've definitely seen that. Yeah, I put it all over Facebook. Yeah. (laughs) And just like you're offering, they worked in some of my personality. I'm like, well, I am a college instructor. I use a Macintosh, blah, blah, blah. And so they wrote me in as the main character's academic advisor sitting at his desk using his iMac. It was great. That's so cool. (laughs) And so I I think if somebody has the opportunity to be a character in your book, they should totally take it because it's something that not only is it a neat memento, but also... That person is probably going to buy a dozen copies of your book and give it to all their friends to say, look, I'm in this novel. Yeah. And I mean, they'll, they're in it forever. Like, That's right. I, I mean, especially with something like a book. I mean, those don't go away. That's right. Especially with all the different formats you have devised. You have the ebook, you have the paperback, you have the hardcover. Let me ask, have you identified uh, some sort of a manufacturer or distributor to help you convert your text into all those different formats? Uh, so actually, Amazon has really great tools for self-publishing as well as Ingram Publishing. Uh, so I'm planning on going through both of those sites. And it's actually fairly easy these days. Uh, And I have a lot of writer friends who've been helping me through that process to make sure that, you know, I don't step into any landmines or anything and can make it the best that it can be. Did you immediately reject the idea of going through the traditional publishing model of like getting an agent and then pitching it to different publishing companies, which has, you know, a chance in a million? So if you'd asked me 10 years ago, that's how I thought I would want to publish. Uh, but at this point, I've actually have built up quite an audience um, of friends and fans that I know will support my novel. So I feel like I'm able to do the self-publishing route. Um, and like I said, technology has made it so much easier that I actually think this is the best option for me. Because uh, what's really important to me is that it is just a goal of mine to get this published. Um, and even if you know, it ends up being the only novel I ever make. Uh, It's just a very important life goal of mine. And this seemed like the best way to go about making it happen. Hopefully it won't be the only novel you ever write. Do you think that depending on what the final copy of this text looks like, that there is room for a sequel? Absolutely. Yes. Yay. I mean, especially because I created a whole world, I could see all sorts of, you know, sort of spin-offs. Um, I have ideas for short stories of the main characters, um, either of what happens to them after or even some, you know, maybe prequels. Um, I have all sorts of ideas, uh, but it's one of those I don't want to plan out too much until I know how this first launch is going to go. But it does seem like it's a good reason for you to self-publish because then you retain control of your intellectual property and can do whatever sequel or prequel you want whenever you want. Yes, that was also very important. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that was a huge part of the decision for me is I care so deeply about these characters and this story that I want to have final say in what's going to happen with it. No, I think that's that's very important. And it's something that some publishers are starting to recognize and respect. And they're starting to like have some sort of even in-house 
some sort of a, a label or division that supports that for authors who want to self-publish, but with the benefits of a larger company. Because however you go about it, this is your life's work, Tifa, and you don't want to just sell that to the highest bidder. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's it's a really strong personal goal. Um, I'd say more than like a professional uh, goal. No, I, I can appreciate that. I've always thought it'd be cool for me to write a book, but that is not something I've ever taken any steps toward actually doing. So I can't really say it's a goal because I have no plan. I have no deadline. It's just more of a dream. It is so much work. It is so overwhelmingly much work. <laughs> I feel like my uh, NaNoWriMo blogging that I did really helped prepare me for the amount of, of work that I am going through with this novel. Because um, it's it is definitely a full-time job trying to get this novel the best that it can be going through peer review processes and having to get used to hearing some harsh criticism, but knowing, you know, when, when they're right, <laughs> it has been a huge learning process and I'm really excited that I've been able to go on this, but yeah, I would, I would encourage anybody who wants to write a book to know that it is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> Yeah. And being able to accept criticism means really letting go of your ego and understanding that sometimes just because it sounds good in your head doesn't mean that it sells well. Yeah. And an honestly, another huge part that makes criticism hard is I sometimes have people who are saying exact opposite things. Like one person will say that they really love this paragraph and they felt like they were in the moment. And then another reader will be like, I didn't understand this paragraph. And you have to find you know, you have to figure out the compromise yourself of, all right, well, which one of these readers is either more of my target audience? How can I, you know, meet in the middle to make everybody happy? Making those really tough calls when there isn't a right answer, because it's all so subjective and learning, you know, what criticism you really need to listen to and what you can really just toss out because it's not relevant to what you're looking for. Yeah, because when you compromise, you don't want to lose the thing that appeals to at least one person. You know, a compromise shouldn't be something that you do so that nobody is happy. Right, yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, it's really important that I'm still getting the message through that I want and not losing sight of that when I do get criticism has been one of the hardest things. And what is the message you're trying to get across? Uh, I mean, for for me, it, it really is that women can be whatever they want to be. Like, I guess, the uh, like, if I had to put it into one sentence uh, of what I hope this novel accomplishes, it's just that people can relate to these characters and know that there isn't just one right way to be a woman or, you know, to be a hero, even um, that there are different paths you can choose. And there isn't a right or wrong answer on how to be a, a hero. Uh, that's a wonderful message. It's, and it's so consistent with who you are and everything you do, including going back to when we met on that panel where we were talking about what it means to be a woman and, you know, all the different ways that you can do that. Yeah, and that's really uh, the reason that I have three characters is they're all very, very different. And that was really important to me that, you know, if one person maybe doesn't relate to the pirate captain, but really relates to the world traveler, um, like that's where I feel like that's what I want my novel to be accomplishing is that somebody 
or that everybody will be able to find someone to relate to in this story. I think I'm probably going to relate to the chef because I am always hungry. (laughs) So you have a wonderful goal and mission for this novel and for this Kickstarter. And one of the people helping you along the way, I understand you have a consultant in crowdfunding. Yeah, Theo Harris, uh, also known as the Geeky Hostess. Uh, But she is... Uh, in charge of Charisma Consulting. Um, She's a really good friend of mine, and she's been amazing in this process. I actually reached out to her months and months ago before I even knew for sure if I was going to do a Kickstarter because she is a Kickstarter wizard, uh, is what I like to say. Um, She's done a few of her own and has also helped quite a few people and companies um, complete their Kickstarters as well. So I went to her you know, seeing if this was the right option for me. Um, and she was fantastic at helping me to basically answer my own questions. Uh, like she would cater her advice to my project specifically and helped me figure out what my audience was, what voice I was going to have. Um, and we also brainstormed all sort of sorts of cool, unique ideas for my project specifically, as far as like rewards and that kind of stuff. And she was just this amazing, supportive person that I could reach out to with any concerns or questions. And she had this breadth of knowledge from her own experiences to help provide me with any answers that I needed. I don't think people realize that Kickstarter consulting is a thing and they don't need to do it on their own. For example, the same person helps run both the Reading Rainbow and the Mystery Science Theater 3000 Kickstarters. Or for example, you're my mutual friend, Laser of the Double Clicks. Yeah. They have helped several people with their Kickstarters as well. Well, it is, I mean, it's becoming a booming thing. And when it started, I mean, it was Kickstarter specifically. Uh, when Kickstarter started, it was very much focused on indie uh, you know, developers or writers. And now, I mean, it's grown to the point where publishers are using it. And if you're going to put a project out there, you really make need to make sure you're putting your best foot forward in order for it to get noticed. So having somebody who understands how the platform works and what things work and don't uh, is very important and I think will go a long way in the success of my project. Part of me marvels that Kickstarter hasn't already peaked. I mean, you talk about when Kickstarter first started. My first time backing a Kickstarter project was 10 years ago this year in 2009. And it crested when Double Fine went and did their adventure on there. And that was 2012. So that was still seven years ago. And people are still doing all this creative work on Kickstarter and still finding work as consultants for other people to launch their Kickstarters. Yeah, I don't think it's gone anywhere anytime soon. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing even more crowdfunding sites like it. Uh, now that Kickstarter is less indie focused, you know, maybe there's room for for something else to pop up. You feel that Kickstarter is less indie focused? When looking at board games, yes. Many of the successful board games are the ones that are... or or the board games that are featured are actually created by publishers instead of just indie developers anymore. I was not aware of that. I mean, I, I was aware that ever since Tim Schafer did his Kickstarter, that more and more celebrities are using Kickstarter. I am sorry to hear that that might be crowding out some of the smaller independent artists for whom Kickstarter was originally created. Yeah. And like I said, I, I notice it more on the board game side, uh, looking at fiction and 
even nonfiction books and stuff, it does look like it's still very uh, indie focused, but the goals for those projects are a lot lower than what you're going to see in like the, the board game area. Remind our listeners where they can find the Kickstarter and when they have until to back it. Yeah, so the Kickstarter launched on February 26th. It's going all the way to March 28th, and they can actually go to tifarobles.com. That's T-I-F-A-R-O-B-L-E-S.com. Fantastic. I'll include a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to your Table Takes show and the Tabletop Test website that you write for. Now, before we wrap up, I have... A couple more questions for you. You are a prolific writer. You are a blogger. You write for board game websites. You are writing an entire novel. I never would have guessed from all these accomplishments that you have dyslexia. How does that work? Yeah. So I, um, my form of dyslexia is a little different than what people generally think of with dyslexia. Um, I have a suppression, which means that one of my eyes uh, goes in and out of focus every two seconds. It's not something that I can notice per se, but it definitely affects how I see the world. Um, It's more about, uh, it's hard for like depth perception, but it definitely affects my reading ability, um, specifically how fast I can read and comprehend information. So one of the hardest things about being a writer is a very good tool for a writer is to read a lot of books. Reading is very challenging for me. Um, it's time consuming. And a lot of times I'll have to read a paragraph a couple times before I fully am able to grasp everything that it says. So that has been a big challenge. But I feel like with um, learning to type has helped me go a long way. Um, my handwriting is not great, but being able to sit at a keyboard and type out my thoughts um, is fantastic. I don't know what I would do uh, without it because I don't feel like dyslexia affects that at all. And then I've just gotten really good at um, reading and editing on a computer screen. And I guess just like practice. Uh, Sometimes I might miss something, but that's, you know, what I have an editor for. But yeah, it's, it's definitely can be really challenging when, you know, words on the page don't always sync up the way they're supposed to. Were you diagnosed with this early? I was 16 when I found out. So it was, you know, probably a little later than it would have been um, good to learn about. But even so, I mean, young enough that I knew going into college um, and going down that path that I would have this to, to deal with. In what way, if any, does it affect your writing? I mean, I think it just takes more time when going through edits. But I, I guess I don't know what, what's more time compared to how somebody else is. Uh, but I would just guess that because it takes longer for me to put words in the right order on the page, when I'm when I'm typing out something, it's very stream of consciousness. And there's probably going to be a lot of mistakes in my first go around. So what I spend more time on is actually going through and making sure there's not mistakes. Uh, And I would say that that becomes a big challenge if I'm trying to just get ideas out fast. And if I get distracted by the the mistakes that I'm making, um, it can take me out of that creative moment. So I've gotten really good at just like ignoring that until I'm done with 
you know, a page or a chapter or whatever it is that I'm working on and worrying about that later. I imagine many authors don't necessarily consider accessibility when they are creating their books. So this question may be premature since your book hasn't been printed yet, but what font is your book going to be printed in? That's a really good question. I actually don't know um, if Amazon has like a standardized font that they use. But that's definitely something that I will look into. I do know that with the actual uh, text itself, because it's aimed at young adult, I am trying to make sure that the language is accessible and, you know, still using great, powerful words, trying to use words that people are going to be able to read and not be tripped up if it's something they've never seen before. One of the reasons I ask is, and this isn't necessarily relevant to books, is that I, I have a friend who used to go around collecting examples of comic sans, like places that people were using this font when it was totally inappropriate. And I would laugh as examples, but then he and I both sort of collectively realized how inadvertently ableist that was because we discovered that Comic Sans is actually, it can be easier to read for some people. And so you shouldn't mock it for that reason. And, and so I, that got me thinking about, oh, what is a good font that is readable, legible, and accessible? Yeah. And honestly, I usually change anything that I am like drafting or writing, I actually use a Georgia font. And I think it's because the, the letters are wider. So there's like more space to like, you know, it's not as close together. Um, and there's more space to sort of see what I'm looking at, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Just as we are recording this podcast, I'm taking notes in Microsoft Word, and I just changed it from the default font of Calibri to Georgia. And I think I see what you mean. Yeah, I I hadn't even really thought about it that much, but the letters are just very like unique in how they're spread apart and also even like wide or they expand a little bit. So it's easier for me to like find where letters are. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing that insight into that side of you. I, that was not something I was even aware of until I started researching you for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't come up much. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing I was aware of, and which I know you want to talk about because you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is that in the time since you were last on this show three years ago, a big change in your life is that you now have a little kiddo of your own. Yeah, two and a half. <laughs> it is quite oh. the journey. <laughs> oh my goodness. I believe I got to meet him when he was about a half, and now he's like quadrupled his age since then. Yeah. So that, of course, takes up a lot of time being a parent. That For some people, that is itself a full-time job. You said you already have a full-time job of just putting together a book and a Kickstarter. So how do you juggle all these commitments? Honestly, when, it's all, when I started being a parent, it came down to prioritizing. Uh, I wasn't able to do all the things like I used to be able to do. Uh, I've always been somebody who, you know, kind of overcommits myself. I'm an extrovert, so I always want to see people. I have a lot of creative endeavors and, you know, going to conventions and hobbies and things that I like to do. Once I had a kid, I had to really look at, well, what is really important to me? What do I have to make sure that I have time for? Because obviously he's my priority number one. Um, so it's, you know, what do I need for him? And then what what is extra on top of that? 
And like I said earlier in the show, Lady Planeswalker Society ended up being something that just as a mom, I wasn't able to juggle that with uh, the full-time job that I was working. And then I actually ended up leaving my full-time job to focus more on writing and to have more time with my son. So now he's in daycare three days a week instead of five days a week. Uh, So I get two days at home with him, which is great. And then those other three days, uh, I get to work on writing and other projects. But a huge part of being a parent is adapting. Um, I think it's a big part of being a human and going into parenthood is no exception to that. I have totally changed my way of life. I actually work nights and sleep during the day when he's at daycare a lot of the time because that's just what works out for our family. And it's weird, just everything seems and feels different and you just have to really be cognizant of your choices and how you're prioritizing your time. You must be a time management and project management wizard because I'm exhausted just listening to everything that you do. <laughs> I'm exhausted all the time. So that's that's a secret as I don't get enough sleep ever. <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of parents, but especially with your Kickstarter coming up, and that can be a full-time job once it's running. It's not just a set it and forget it. You come back in a month and all your money's yeah. there. And even once the Kickstarter is complete, you have to actually spend the money and make the book and as you mentioned, maybe even go on tour with it. And that's going to be even more exhaustion. Yeah, well, there's a reason I quit my job before, you know, going on this endeavor, (laughs) because I knew there was no way to put the time and energy I wanted this book to have, because, you know, it deserves all that I'm giving it. I knew there was no way to do that and work a full-time job and take care of my baby and be there for him. Now at two and a half years old, maybe it's too early to ask this, but are you raising your kid to be a gamer? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, (laughs) So my husband and I, you know, are both, our whole life is games. It was important to us that we don't force him into it, but luckily he has been naturally very interested in games. He has some of his own little toddler board games that he loves to pull out and play with. Um, He also is obsessed with the Xbox controller. He already knows how to use it which is just crazy to me. He has a little bit of an addiction to this baby game on my phone. So we've been working on setting limits. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it very much seems like we have a gamer on our hands. What's the iPhone game? Uh, It's literally just called like baby games. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's made for like one year olds, but he loves it. It teaches like colors and different animal sounds and, you know, all the things that two year olds love. And it, I, I feel like it's educational, so I don't want to completely take it away from him. But I also am concerned about a two year old having an iPhone addiction. Um, so it's, it's right. all about finding boundaries, which again, it's adapting as a parent and figuring out whatever your ideas of what you thought you were going to be as a parent, they all go out the window immediately. And, they're constantly changing and growing. So once you're used to something that they're doing, they're immediately going to turn into a different, like it's going to turn into a different problem the next day. But yeah, it's, it's been really awesome to see that he's excited about gaming and figuring out how to make sure he's a responsible gamer. You know, you said something that I've never actually thought about that. I, I agree with you that adaptation and evolution is essential to your growth as a person. But when you are with somebody like 24-7 almost, who is constantly changing and adapting, you don't have the luxury of remaining static. You have to adapt alongside them. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That I think that is the biggest part of being a parent. And I think it's what a lot of people don't 
expect or realize before they get into it that like you can think you have everything planned for what you're going to do and it's just it's very unlikely that you're going to stick to those plans oh well that sounds like that also sounds exhausting it's also very exciting like yes it is exhausting and frustrating but it is thrilling and exciting and interesting every day and you'd still get to balance both the unpredictability of being a parent with Hopefully, some routine. For example, you still are able to set long-term goals. You're able to take a book that you first wrote 16 years ago, more than half your life ago, and make it a real thing with any luck, as this Kickstarter will reveal. Yeah. I mean, that, that you have all different sources of excitement in your life. Yeah, and I have to give a shout-out to my wonderful husband for supporting me on this journey. I can't imagine being able to juggle all of this without him. And I need to give a shout-out to your wonderful husband for having been on this show three years ago. He made a great guest. Yeah, I'm sure he'd be happy to come back. I'm sure a lot has changed in his life, too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Tifa, we have talked about so much about your writing, your videos, your freelancing, your novel, your Kickstarter, and, of course, you being a mom. Is there anything we've overlooked? I don't think so. I think we hit everything. Thank you so much, Ken. This has been great. Oh, it's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Tifa. I can't believe that offline our paths have only crossed twice at PAX East four or five years ago, and then two years ago when I was in Seattle. We need to find like somewhere in the middle. Let's go meet up in Kansas City sometime. Let, to go take your book tour to Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> sure. Yeah, if it is funded enough, I will do that. <laughs> Fantastic. If, if there is a Kickstarter reward to send you to Missouri... I will be your backer. Great. (laughs) Fantastic. Remind our listeners just one more time where to find you and your work online. Uh, So you can go to tifarobles.com, T-I-F-A-R-O-B-L-E-S.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at tifarobles. Awesome. Tifa Robles, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ken. Talk to you later. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.